Podcasting straight from North Carolina is Dr. Jennifer Eichner-Lowry sharing her author journey with you. Jen Lowry writes is a place where amazing things happen for authors and readers together. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate podcast host. Jen is just the bird singing the song. She is a published author, educator, homeschool mama, life coach, and dreamer. Join her on the daily journey of discovering what this writing life is all about. Let's see what she will be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about today. Here's Jen. Welcome to Jen Lowry Writes. Today, I am so honored and blessed to have the opportunity to introduce you guys to Mickey Boaz. She is the author of One in Five. So now you can hit pause. You can go get this book because you know that if someone's on my show, then that means that I champion the work and what Mickey is doing for students with dyslexia and for their families. So who is Mickey? Mickey is a marketing consultant and entrepreneur who has worked with a range of iconic brands, including Nike, Samsung, the ACLU, the United Nations, and Fusion to find bold, provocative solutions for broken systems. When Boaz's older son was diagnosed with dyslexia, it took her four years of legal battles that drained her savings, battered her self-esteem, and pulled her family apart to find an education that fits his needs. As a result, she created Invisible Red Tape, a thought leadership forum and online advising platform designed to expose the inequalities in education for children with dyslexia and crowdsource an insider's guide to practical solutions. And that's what Mickey's here to talk with us about today is one in five. So hello, Mickey. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And your journey is just an amazing one. What you and your family and your children and your mom. <laughs> it, was, it was a collaborative work that you had for years to get you to this point where now you are the expert mom. <laughs> You are out championing for other families and really saying, okay, invisible red tape, there is some, and here are some practical ways that you can get through that to ensure that your child is receiving their very best. Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. so, so now, you know, your bio says the four years of legal battles, but how long did it take for you as far as putting this invisible red tape together for the book to come to light. Talk mm -hmm. to us about that authoring process that happened for you. Yep. So thank you so much for a great intro. Um, I, funny enough, have never written a book or ever dreamed about writing a book in my life. Um, I'm a storyteller for other brands. And, and like you said in the intro, I really thrive on helping them find innovative ways to solve their business problems. And so I never knew that one of the biggest problems I'd have to solve is taking on this education inequality that our children face. So I was in the right place at the right time, um, kind of talking about my struggles. And um, I was able to get a book deal and I wrote um, for six, I put this whole book together in six months. So I quit my job. <laughs> I dropped everything. And this is my gift to the community because I wish that I would have known these things. Because if we wait, 
for the school systems to change to meet the needs of our children, our grandkids will still be facing the same problems. And I actually interview a grandmother in the book. Um, and so my goal was to really um, use my strengths as a strategist and a storyteller to um, expose what we were all going through through these emotional stories. And at the end of each story, we have a section from the mom's point of view on what she would have known or how what her point of view is how to fix it. Because what I realized, Jen, is that this is not a problem in Jersey City where I'm located. This is a national education crisis. And I felt the only way to showcase that was by showing stories from North Carolina. One of my favorite stories is from North Carolina. Um, and uh, I talked to women in California and Florida and New York, everywhere. So I talked to over 200 parents and experts and I called down the book to my story, 19 other women. And then the last section of the book is how do we fix it and the solutions. And so any parent that's struggling right now in whatever format of learning that you're in, um, this is a, a way to hack the system. And talking with those families, did it bring you even a greater sense of urgency that you knew what you were doing was the right steps? Like you knew that this book could really help shed light and make a difference. Yeah. I mean, I feel grateful that I had the resources that I had and the time and English is my first language, right? Like there's so many other barriers that can get in your way. And if it took me, this long to get where I needed, that sense of urgency was great. And so I talked to parents in private schools. I talked to parents in charter schools. I talked to parents in um, public schools. I talked to people in um, low income places in English as a second language everywhere because I wanted to make sure that we could tackle this from all sides and make sure that the urgency was there. And I felt like I needed therapy after going through it because Imagine you, you, I came out of my story and said, okay, what can I do so other people don't have to go through this? So I gave my voice and my, my heart and energy to tell these other women's stories. And it was tragic. It was so tragic. And that's the sense of urgency to fix it. And so when you went around making these contacts, tell others how was that process for you? Was yeah. it hard? Was it just like doors opening left and right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that whole interview process could be maybe daunting for people who might be out there looking for this nonfiction route for themselves, but going like, but then how do you even get started with that? How did that come to be as even being a part of, I understand why it's a part of the book because you wanted to show and bring national attention, but mm -hmm. how did you go from the thought of that to the actual process of that. Right. So um, I learned more from groups on Facebook and Instagram that are focused on dyslexia than I ever learned from a professional, a speech therapist, <laughs> because we they are in the weeds. They're in my neighborhood telling me the advice that we need. And so I I mean, I studied um, at a bunch of different programs in storytelling and the kind of key principle of storytelling is if you build it with the community, they will be invested in telling the stories. And so I went out and I said, hey, guys, this isn't about me, because if it's if it's about my story, it's not it's going to fall flat. So please, everyone, I put out a submission for stories, literally a Google sheet. And I it had 16 different lines. And I said, what's your problem? What are you struggling with? 
where do you live? How old are you know, your kids, whatever. And I just sorted through them and I wrote everyone a note because imagine what it takes to regurgitate your story and live through that again. So the least that they get from me is a, is a thank you. And so I got over 200 story submissions and I was blown away. So this is a book for and by the community. But that also allows you the opportunity to see that people want to hear their voice. Yes. Yes. And giving them a platform that way and honoring their stories in the way you did. That is so very special because yes. sometimes people can feel silent. They feel so trapped in the story, trapped in the moment. And at least talking about it, there's a validation there. There is. And the schools have so much power and they outweigh you like 10 to 1 in every IEP meeting that you're in. And so... To, to have that justification and that platform, like you said, was really freeing. And I heard so many great things from the women featured in the story. And it, it was it came out the way that I planned. So, yeah. And so then having to only choose 19. Oh, that was great. I actually think that was the hardest part because, you know, I mentioned I'm a strategist. So I know how to put things in groups and I know how to, you know, put things together. But what I was finding, Jen, was that every story had the range of outrageous obstacles from denial to the lack of early intervention to teacher training. And so I couldn't really, you know, sort them. So I, I spent hours and days with my publishers trying to figure it out. And we just kind of sorted them based on the main um, issue. And we live in a headline culture. And so the ones that were the most outrageous were kind of the ones that made it into the book. And I wanted to make sure we were covering all ranges of cultural issues that we're dealing with right now. Um, so you have issues about racism, you have issues about, you know, schools spending money on screens for TVs versus um, in, in football fields versus literacy training. So rural Iowa, to you know, New York City. And then when you get to the, the back portion, part three of the book, mm -hmm. that is really where parents can live a moment too. Yes, yes. Because you talk about the struggles that you faced. You talked about the silver lining and, and that there's the hope. And then you say, and now here's what's next. Yep. And, and mm -hmm. that part for parents, I think is very critical. Because it's not just a collection of stories or vignettes. It's not just, it's about what could be some possible next steps. Yeah. What words now can I have in my vocabulary to be able to navigate the system? Yeah. And, and that's, I specifically built the book because the, the book Marketplace and Dyslexia is you have expert books on one side written by PhDs that are amazing foundational books. And then you have the how-to books, like, how to write letters, how to speak this. And um, my my way in was telling emotional stories with enough facts and research and a little bit of how-tos to make this kind of heavy topic uh, more digestible. And it was as if I was having a conversation with you and you were not in the room with me. Oh, that's so good. That's great to hear you say that because... Um, I try to, sometimes in business, I get pinged for being too conversational. So it's actually good in a book like this, though, because you're talking about raw truths, mm -hmm. real, real issues that you're having to face, emotion, 
you know, expectancy, you know, the, the expectation is, is real. Like, and then the gaps when they appear. And yeah. so having a conversation instead of just here's some facts, here's some statistics, here's this, the way that you did, like you say, put that total paint, mm -hmm. that picture to make it a complete portrait. And so when you went and you began saying, okay, I'm going to write this book, never written a book before. <laughs> I know how to like tell a story, but then what's next? Did you actually go out and start surveying other books to know like how you just describe that is what I think all authors really need to describe. They need to be able to say, no matter if they're writing fiction or nonfiction, well, it's the, the PhD jargon and the talk mm -hmm. you know, to this or it's then it's to that you found your niche. You found that perfect place on the bookshelf where you would fit. How did you know where you would fit? What was your process in that one? Because that's an important piece I think authors could learn from you about. Yeah. So um, I, my process of getting a book deal and writing a book is, is very like backwards from the way I guess it typically happens. I joined a nonfiction writers group here in Jersey City called Jersey City Writers, and I learned everything from them. So I couldn't have written the book without them. So all the nonfiction writers group out there, keep, keep at it. Um, as a strategist, when I am looking at a problem, I always look at where is that white space and where is that niche? So I worked with Tiller Press, which is a startup within Simon & Schuster, and their principle on writing books is how do we get books to the market quicker and faster so that the topics are more relevant, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's when I kind of scanned the market like I would scan a business problem and said, hey, I never, I just was in the right place at the right time. And my brain just went to like, what if we told emotional stories? Because as I was telling a story, that's what kind of sparked the interest, right? And so I think for fellow writers out there, can you make a one page pitch, right? Which is, here's the market, you know, here's where the current book market lies. And so when I had this idea, I didn't know what the market looked like. I just knew those were the books that were recommended. And I kind of was babbling on my and then I actually went back and I did the research and I mocked it out on a two by two and um I put who I thought the target audience is as a publisher one in five is a great built-in audience right um yeah. and um the idea that we were writing it kind of using spreadable media principles that I learned at MIT if you build it with the community they they will help spread it and, and build it for you. So I think those kind of key principles was what was the pitch that was um, appealing to the publisher. I also love to hear you give talks to your writing group. Oh yeah, that was so great. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, um, I I'm not one to like necessarily. Um, when I'm not good at something, like join a group and be like the worst one in the group. But we own a local coffee shop and the head of the writers group was like hanging out in our coffee shop one day, kind of faith, right? And um, she was like, do you want to come join our group? And it took a lot of her convincing me to get there. But then once I was there, um, you know, every two weeks we signed up to present our work and I was on a deadline and 
their feedback was phenomenal, sometimes better than my editor. And um, they helped me with structure. They helped me in how you open and how you close. And I'm, I'm super grateful for them. And I highly recommend anybody who's a first time writer to not have the fear that I had because they're so accepting. Those places are so accepting. Yeah. And so getting over that fear, it's the passion behind the work. Yeah, because if I was, you know, writing about, um, you know, something that wasn't my kids and something that I wanted to fix, we, we can all procrastinate, right? We can all make a million reasons why, but I had a deadline. I had a, books were going to be printed. I didn't have a way around it. So um, I, I actually think if you can maybe force it into yourself that you have this deadline or you have some kind of thing that you have to make or some kind of reward, it it, it kind of kicks that surge capacity <laughs> of it. When forced, it forced you into that space, that exactly. uncomfortable space, yet that's the place where you can look back and can attribute growth. Yeah, and, and, and I once I, to your point, once I had that outline in my head strategically, all I knew was I just had to go find the facts and the people to put it together. And it was just a matter of like, okay, week one is this, week two is this, week three is this. And again, I didn't have an option because I didn't give myself that cushion. I quit my job. I knew that this was it. And I didn't, I didn't build in any room to fail. <laughs> but I love it that, that you set structured goals you had a timeline mm -hmm. and like you say, create your own timeline. And you also mentioned rewards. Did you give yourself a reward for one in five? I did actually. Um, so never ideal to launch a book in a pandemic. Um, and so I'm glad that I set little milestones along the way. So when I turned in the first draft, a bunch of us got together at a local bar, people who helped me with the book, my friends and family. And we just like, celebrated because that's half the battle like I mean there's a lot there was a long editing process after that but I really felt like I birthed another child <laughs> and like the fact that I struggle with ADHD myself and that I wrote a, a book that that was I was very proud of myself <laughs> so first draft celebration yeah how about when the books came in the box oh actually you can go to the invisible red tape um, on Facebook and my husband's a photographer. And so he actually in this room, he came up behind me with the book and showed it to me and got my reaction on film. And so I just started, my kids gave me the book and I just started like, I couldn't believe it was real. So yeah, it was a great moment. And what did the kids say to you? Actually, my son read my book as his summer reading project. And so oh. to have that like 360 circle I actually filmed those moments too. It was amazing to hear. He's like, mom, I didn't know that about that. And he started knowing what CST meant, a child study team. And so to have my rising sixth grader read my book was the best uh, gift I could have. I believe that. That is so true. Yeah. So true. And I know they're very proud of you. They are. They are. And, uh, you know, we had an event with my son's school and, you know, trying to get the word out there, especially right now on, on how to fix it. Because as you, as you can see in the book, there's like three main structural issues. And so, I've, you know, been talking about that with, 
with people for a while now. I love the teacher training piece that you placed in the book as a high priority for colleges, you know, universities across the nation to really investigate their courses that they're offering, the curriculum that they're placing, you know, how are they prioritizing the instruction? Um, I'm a huge phonics proponent, and I do believe that, you know, the balanced literacy approach has its place, but I'm huge on that <laughs> side of the phonics world. And I, too, had a denial moment in my life. And no matter what degrees you have, what experience you have, you know, I trusted communication with my child's teacher. And I trusted that communication so much that when we did have limited homework, because it was just limited in kindergarten, really mm -hmm. limited in first grade, I did not go any further. I should have had the warning signs. I should have had all of these internal bells ringing and when i had that candid conversation with his second grade teacher and she said look he's reading on a kindergarten level and i was like wait what everyone's told me he was top three in the class everyone has said he's been doing so wonderful wait what and then she went out for surgery and we got another substitute and then it was like wait um what's happened in my life how did i miss it and I had these mom guilt moments, these just blaring guilt moments that I went through. And I said, this is something that should have, you know, long ago, we could have avoided this. Why wasn't I paying better attention? What was happening? And so I picked up on the phonics. I started every night with him and he got, you know, better and better. He cried many, many nights, many nights. Um, thanks to, for me, Mary Pope Osborne in the Magic Treehouse and just really pushing with him. And then it's, oh, we're not going to retain him now. He's now most improved in reading. He's caught up. He's at this phase. But it was because my teacher kicked in. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, wow, imagine the parent that doesn't have that teacher training piece that kicks in. And I missed it, Nikki. I missed it with my kid. And so then when I homes, I pulled him for homeschool and I've been very blessed to be able to homeschool my children. Um, and so in third grade up, and now he's in eighth grade and we're reading the Fellowship of the Ring and we're talking all the way. Wow. Um, he doesn't embrace the love of reading as my oldest son does. And he's not going to be reading on his own, at, you know, but he can analyze text now and he can mm -hmm. read and he can, you know, with accommodations, with spell checkers and with word and um, everything that we have with voice, you know, he's able to get his thoughts and write story worlds and build fantasy worlds. And it's just, how did I miss it, Mickey? And, and I feel like you had that same moment that I shared that with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all have this guilt and I'm so glad that you figured it out. And he, he is where he is today because for 20% of the population, they are not lucky enough to have that. And so even as I mentioned in the book, my mom's a speech therapist. My husband, who's dyslexic, one of the strengths of dyslexia is that you see the bigger picture, right? You, 
and he was recognizing the same things that happened to him. But I didn't want to see it because I knew the work that was going to be ahead of me. And unlike you, I am not a good candidate for homeschooling. <laughs> um, although Everybody's I, different. You know, I did um, interview um, some moms who chose that option in the book. Actually, a mom in Michigan is doing great with homeschooling. And I, I think it's a great thing if it works. But um, uh, I was so in denial. And I feel like I lost that that momentum because early intervention is the key. If you get it early, so you know, you can accurately diagnose dyslexia at five. You should be reading proficiently by seven, yet 40% of children with learning disabilities get diagnosed at 10, three years later. And two thirds don't get diagnosed at all. So consider yourself lucky. And you know, as we're in these moments that we're in, sit at the table with your kids and see what's going on. Because I, I actually think nobody wants a pandemic. This, no, this is a horrible thing that is happening. Mm -hmm. I think there will come some education innovation because it's literally sitting next to us at the table. And so the denial is not possible, right? You, you can hide in the basement like I am right now. You know, you can do what you need to do. But um, if your child isn't, my child's going into the third grade. If he's not reading by the end of this year, he's four times more likely to drop out of high school. I'm not letting that happen. So I might have to download a homeschooling curriculum. I might have to do what I can. And I'm privileged to do that. It, it, so many people don't have that. And to your point about teacher training, um, you know, just, just just to back up real quickly, the, the the three problems in the book is that there's not enough funding, right? The the I call the federal government a deadbeat dad, but it's it's um you know it, the the gov federal government said they would fund individuals disabilities act at forty percent forty years ago. On a they the highest they've ever come to meeting that is fifteen percent. So that leaves the state and local governments holding the bag. And so Jersey City is $155 million underfunded. They, they barely have enough money to get the kids to school and to feed them. How are they going to teach them? So that lack of, of early inter, lack of um, funding leads to the lack of early intervention. If you don't have enough money to serve the problem, why are you going to go looking for it? So. My youngest son, I actually have two kids with dyslexia and his struggle was even harder because he was like one point from qualifying for an evaluation. And so you really need to look at data. And I talk a lot about that in the book. And you know this as a literacy coach, there's such a wide range. And he was at the, you know, that must be a bad I didn't feed him enough food. I don't know what happened, right? And so, um, that was a fight just to just to have that happen and have special educator teachers accuse me of, of so many things. But anyway, so so get them screened. Um, it's, it's your right under federal law to have them screened. Um, I know you have some good laws in North Carolina that are yeah. being passed there. And, and excellent teachers and yeah. excellent supports. Yes. Yeah. And then to your point about teacher training is that let's say you finally get the magic diagnosis, like what happened with my child. I got 30 minutes of Orton-Gillingham support by an untrained teacher a week in first grade, right? And so I feel for special education teachers, I feel for literacy coaches, I believe people that go into this have good intentions. I believe the administration, their hands are tied because they're not getting what they need from the federal government and they have to make those hard choices. But um, 
that special education teachers are asked to, to, and maybe we can have a conversation about this, but you're asked to educate 13 different types of disabilities, right? And as you, you know, Emily Hanford's work probably better than anybody, but she mentioned that only four out of 10 teacher training programs teach the science of reading. So, uh, you know, in my struggles and in the book, we find innovative solutions. Like I said, can I bring in my tutor? Another uh, mom in, where was she, in Minnesota, had to pay to rent the library because it was going to be a liability if they brought anyone in from outside of school and mm -hmm. had to split the cost of the tutor with the other five parents in the room because there was not a budget for it. I mean, one of those innovative solutions that you talk about was what New York did and they opened up the school. Oh, that is so amazing. If you guys can get that going. I know in South Carolina they have one, but um, in North Carolina, I mean, that that to me is a future model that everyone should have. I, I know I don't know how you feel about like inclusion classrooms or all of that, but um, what was so amazing about Tim's school, um, Bridges, uh, Bridges Prep in Staten Island, is that um, from the moment you walked in the school, there was multi-sensory hallways that were named after famous dyslexic students with trained um, teachers in the classroom and Orton Gillingham fellow. And this all came from the Staten Island community simply saying, why are kids not given an, an equitable education? And Tim had fought for almost five years to get that school you know, put in place. He has a tattoo on his arm that he's the captain of the plane. And to make that happen, I, I think there's, I mean, Jersey City has 30,000 kids and you know, we should have at least 20 schools that are addressing um, the needs of dyslexic kids. But I love though those practical tips and you and the way that you strategically place them there. It gives moms a pause to where yeah. they can then pull out a notebook and say, oh, maybe I do need to talk with my pediatrician. Maybe these are some questions that I could ask the doctor. Maybe this is the way. And, and I love that because, like you say, one of those battles is that early intervention. I am such a proponent for early intervention and, you know, trained early interventions right. that can truly help students, you know, start to navigate their world in the way that they need it to be, you know, their way. Um, and so everything that you just poured into this book, you can fill it from page one. <laughs> It's like it's truly something that needs to be spread around. <laughs> and those like those three takeaways continue to work. And I know that with Invisible Red Tape, now that you have your forum and your platform, what do you foresee about that in the future for you, Mickey? Like ever thought you were going to be this mom advocate? I never thought I did. I, looking back, um, um, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity that, to be able to tell all these stories and, and be very fortunate. And um, the Invisible Red Tape is funny because that was the actual first name of the book um, because I feel like two thirds of kids with learning disabilities slip through the crack and it just become acceptable. And so the red tape just keeps piling up and piling up and um, I think that schools don't um, want to teach us our rights. And therefore, my goal was like, how do we educate parents in a way that isn't um, 
you know, the current ways. And so for the invisible red tape, my goal is to um, make sure that we all have voices and that we can all share our stories because that's the only way change happens. So practical piece of advice, we all vote in November, right? Doesn't matter who you vote for, but talk to your senators, talk to your Congress people and tell them your stories so they can fully fund IDEA, right? So yeah. that's what I want Invisible Red Tape to be. I want it to be a place where we can tell our stories in mass and tell them in a way that the people who hold the power can start to listen to us and our kids can get, and we can find innovative solutions to get our kids the education they deserve. When I was an elementary school teacher um, back in another county mm -hmm. before, before moving here, I, I loved elementary school. I just knew, and you know, now I'm in a whole nother world, um, but I was elementary school and I actually would hold after school sessions with my parents not getting paid for it, I would call them in and I would teach them. This is the part of an IEP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would actually hold parent training sessions. This is how you can work with homework. This is how you can, you know, reiterate the skills that we're learning in class. So that way when you're at home, you can pattern these things. And I did these training sessions with moms and dads and grandparents and taught them the language behind what we do. This is the reason why. This is why I teach this way. This is how you work through this IEP with me. These are goals. This is, you know, X, Y, Z. And I felt like that was such a valuable piece that I added into that community. And that wasn't like a part of my teacher prank training. That was just like my heart to try to serve. And I do feel that we have such wonderful, strong educators out there who are servant leaders. They just need to have, oh, that's an innovative solution. That yep. is a great way of looking at that. And, you know, if we have parents that may be uninformed, what are some great ways that we can get them to become more informed so we can have these wonderful conversations at the table to actually talk about the needs of children? And so that's something that I applaud you about because you're looking for those innovative. I love that word, that innovative way, that innovative strategies on how to tackle the problem. Yeah. And there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to be done, you know, in the nation and around the world of literacy. And there's ways that we can accomplish it when we sit at the table and have those truth conversations and, and start working for the betterment of the children's education. And, and you know, their futures depend on us at this stage to say, wait, if there is a problem, how can we help solve these problems? Yeah. And I, I, I think a lot of it, to your point, is about access to information. And I actually um, am working on an idea around that as well. It's called Blinda. It's still a work in progress. But I was trying to figure out, I found the number one problem was um, like resources, no, not many people have resources for lawyers and advocates. And so I was building Blinda, which is a um, kind of way to provide inf quality information from people who have been there before. So I was looking to bring in experienced moms to advise moms that are about to go through it because I feel like we can shortcut that curve and cause a lot less damage to our kids and get them that early intervention they need. And so, um, you know, you can stay tuned on all the channels about that. But and, and local groups have that, right? And so it's just a matter of making it bite-sized 
and not being intimidating to your point because all that language, I mean, at 11 o'clock at night when you're on your like little phone worrying about what your child's doing at school the next day, that that's asking too much. Yeah, but you're, you've got steps, I think, steps for the future. So yeah. I think one in five is just the first step for you. Yes, hopefully, hopefully. I, I love to be a podcast host, make a film, build a platform for us to all talk and have quality advice because yeah, to your point, I think this is scratching the surface and and anyone who has advice and, and ideas to contribute to, to how to fix it, you know, please visit Invisible Red Tape or, you know, check out one in five how we're fighting for our dyslexic kids and a system that's failing them. Love. So other than your website, do you have that website? Do you have a Facebook group? Yeah, the, I have a Facebook page and it's just Invisible Red Tape. And if you're an Instagram person, it's at Invisible Red Tape. Um, and you can contact me at Mickey at Invisible Red Tape if you have any ideas or questions. Awesome. So I heard some next steps for you, podcasting, <laughs> podcasting, <laughs> I heard that allowing people to share their, not just their journey and, and what their inspirations were behind the work that they're doing, but their process we can also help other authors to share their story. Yes. Other authors who may have fear of joining that writer's group mm -hmm. or they may say, oh, I've never written a book before. Oh, well, I'm not an expert in this. But then you showed, well, you can go out and you can tap into those experts. Yeah. You can go in and do your research. You can go in and, and collect the story. Um, I'm just I'm very thankful that you're here. And you have this book in front of you that you will be able to champion forever because you took that risk. You said, wait, I'm going to stand up for my one in five. And then again for your next one in five. Yeah. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully it helps the next one in five. And yeah, thank you so much for, for having me and for doing the great work you do in the literacy space and, the more we talk about it, um, ho hopefully we won't be talking about these problems with our grandkids. Right. Let us keep continuing to work for positive change. And I just want to say thank you again, Mickey. And guys, go out and get one in five. Share it with your family and friends. You are going to see me talking about one in five as one of the nonfiction books of the year, especially if you know someone that's in your circle that may be battling with just the understanding of next steps, what to do, early intervention. Um, it's just a powerful story, too, that you could also read. That way, if you ever meet someone in the future, you can say, oh, well, I read Vicky's book. <laughs> I have a name now. I have a book that I can recommend to you. So I would say um, go out and give it a shot. So one in five, go check it out. And thank you, Mickey, for being here. Guys, I will see you guys later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for supporting my Jen Lowry Writes podcast. My purpose is to inspire and encourage others to chase after their writing goals with faith and courage. By hitting the support this podcast button and with your monthly contribution of 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99, you are helping me chase after mine.
Now that you've found me on the Jen Lowry Writes podcast, I challenge you to head over to where books are sold and find me there. I've published 11 books so far, and I write clean books for all ages. Horror, paranormal, sweet romance, fantasy, historical fiction, you name it, I've got your genre. Search Jen Lowry at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kobo, and more. And for my Bible devotionals, you'll see my full name, Dr. Jennifer Eichner Lowry on Amazon. So I challenge you today to go out there and write something inspiring and share it with the world. Thanks for joining me on Jen Lowry Writes. You guys have a blessed day.